I'm Laura Harper-Lake. And I'm Sarah Reitzman, and you're listening to Creative Guts. and happy new year we're back with a super special episode of creative guts today's episode for the first time ever was recorded in front of a live audience we are talking with storyteller and author rebecca rule this episode was originally recorded in the auditorium at exeter high school with students teachers and staff looking on becky has authored many books some for children and young people, some for adults and folks of all ages, and many that show her roots in New Hampshire. Becky hosted the New Hampshire Author Series on New Hampshire PBS for 10 years and currently hosts Our Hometown on New Hampshire PBS. She also currently writes for New Hampshire Magazine. We're thrilled to share today's episode with you, so without further ado, let's get into this episode of Creative Guts with Rebecca Rule. Rolling. All right. So on today's episode of Creative Guts, we're talking with Rebecca Rule, a New Hampshire native, a storyteller, and a writer. Becky, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I am delighted. And before we start, we also want to thank our live audience for joining us. We're recording from Exeter High School today, which is a very exciting first for Creative Guts. Ferrar. <laughs> oh, yeah. Make yeah. some noise. <laughs> So, Becky, for our listeners tuning in and for those in the audience this morning that know nothing about you, will you just introduce yourself and tell them a little bit about you as a a writer and a storyteller? Uh, Well, I've been writing for many years. I published my first book in the 1980s, so that might give you an idea of how long I've been writing. I started out as a serious writer of short fiction and then moved into humor because I found that as I went out to promote books and read stories to people, they really like to laugh and I really liked to make them laugh. There's nothing (laughs) I love more than a room full of people laughing together. So I continued writing, but I also morphed into storytelling, which is writing out loud, writing out loud. It's quite a bit different. I mean, maybe we'll talk about that some, but mostly what I do now is I tell stories around the state, and I write a regular column for New Hampshire magazine called Aya. Can you say it with me? Aya. Aya. Called Aya. It's Yankee humor on the last page. And I'm, I always have a book in the works. Currently, I'm working on a book called Meanwhile in Bobolink, which might be a murder mystery if I can figure out who to murder. <gasps> it's, it's, it's tough. I fall so much in love with my characters that I hate to kill them off. So I've been a full-time writer and storyteller for probably 30 years. That's excellent. So you mentioned beginning in the 80s. Was there a particular moment when you knew you wanted to be a writer? Yes, I was um, five years old, <laughs> and uh, and I was playing with little with little uh, Scrabble tiles on the table. And my father said, "Becky, you just made a word." And I said, "I did." And he said, "Yes." And I had made the word P O P pop. And it was so magical and so amazing that I just wanted to write words for the rest of my life, and that's what I've been doing. Now, was it like talking about your 
bother or was it like a sound effect in a comic book pop? And I didn't know. I would just put <laughs> some letters in a row and they made a word called pop. And I still find, I still find the magic in putting together a sentence and finding just the right word. And I think that sometimes I put maybe too much emphasis on the poetry of language as a prose writer when mm-hmm. I should just tell the darn story. (laughs) So there's a balance there between moving the story forward and playing with language, which I love to do. (laughs) That's beautiful. A magic in finding the right words in the right order and building the right sentence. So from your early days, sort of spelling pop on accident, (laughs) how have you grown as a writer and a storyteller? How have things evolved? Well, I think I've become more confident It wasn't until I was in high school and college that I got very serious about writing. And in the beginning, it's all about getting published. It's still that way today, I think, although there are many more venues for being published than there were in the 80s. But it was all about getting that first article in a magazine, getting that first story in Yankee Magazine, getting that first book accepted by a tiny publisher in (laughs) Maine, and, and having 600 copies of that printed and holding it in your hands. And then after you've published enough, I've published enough, Uh, Someone said to me, how many books do you want to publish before you die? And I said, 10. And they said, how many have you published? And I said, 14. (laughs) (laughs) But because you can't stop, you can't stop. But for 17 years, I worked as a um, books reviewer for the Concord Monitor, the Portsmouth Herald, and the Nashua Telegraph. And I wrote a column a week. So over that time, I wrote more than 1,400 columns, which were published. And that's enough. Wow. And that's enough. And once again, I'm where I was at five years old. I'm engaging with the language and I'm engaging with the story and just enjoying the process. And I've also returned to writing serious fiction more than humor. Although I still, I still tell stories. And whether it's stories for adults or for children, you have children's books as well, correct? I do. Yes. Mm-hmm. So the central theme of the work seems to be New Hampshire. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which we love. We're very New Hampshire-centric. Did you set out with that theme in the mind from your the onset, or was it sort of something that just well, gathered? I take what people tell me seriously, and forever teachers would say, write what you know. And what I knew was New Hampshire, and what I knew was growing up in New Hampshire in a little house on Con Hill Road in Boston. Coin, New Hampshire, <laughs> in a family of trappers and fishermen and hunters. That's what I knew. So that's what I wrote about. And it was beyond me to imagine what science fiction writers do, because how can they know that? But as I have read more fantasy and science fiction, I begin to understand that they too are writing what they know when it comes to the heart of the story. Right. Yeah, I think so. That's great. You mentioned it being enough, and I'm curious, something that we talk with creatives on the show about a lot is how they define success and how do you know when you're successful? How are you defining success for yourself? I set out early on with two goals. One was to publish something, anything, and the other was to publish a children's picture book because that is a collaboration. The process of collaborating, of having my words with someone else's 
visual arts seem to me the height of, I don't know if you want to call it success, but the height of communication. Mm. The books I love best are some of the books that I read as a child. You know, the books that really stay with you, Where the Wild Things Are, Winnie the Pooh. Those (laughs) kinds of books are generational. And I really wanted to do a book like that. And I wrote the iciest, diciest, scariest sled ride ever, exclamation point. Um, and it's a story about kids who climb up a hill on the icy, dicey crust and then slide down the other side with some stuff in between. And that was published, I think, about six years ago. And I, it's still selling. And I still get parents, grandparents, and kids who say to me, I love that book. You know, we read this book. That's success to me. Yeah, beautiful. I love that. Moving from writing to being in front of the camera and storytelling, you hosted the New Hampshire Author Series for 10 years on New Hampshire PBS. Mm-hmm. That's pretty awesome. You interviewed something like 30 New Hampshire writers. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. are some of the highlights of that? Or, or, how, or first, oh. maybe how did you get involved with that? And then what are some of the highlights? I got involved by saying yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got involved, um, I think, because of my publications and people at New Hampshire PBS had read some of my work uh, and knew I was sort of out and about in the community. They knew that I knew a lot of writers because of my work in the newspapers. And they said, would you like to host this series? There's no money. And I said, yes. And I did. (laughs) And I did. So it was a wonderful experience. And some of the writers that I interviewed, Don Murray, Tommy DePaola, so many of them have since died. But I will give you two highlights from that. One is when Tommy DePaola, who's a wonderful children's book author, Streganona, you know, one foot, in, one fo- first one foot, then the other. If you've never met Tommy DePaula, he's a man who lights up a room. We had over, I don't know, maybe 100 people in the library at UNH. Just the room was filled. And he walked down the aisle like a rock star. Mm. People were just agog at this amazing, smiling, glowing human being. And he sat down, and we had a row of little bitty children in the front, small, small children. And at the end of our interview, we said, does anybody have any questions for Tommy? And this littlest, littlest girl raised her hand and she said, Tommy DePaula, where is, where is Streganona now? <laughs> and he said, well, she's in her village <laughs> and she's probably cooking. <laughs> and it was just so amazing because to this child, Streganona was real. Mm. And to Tommy DePaula, Streganona was real. He knew exactly where she was. It was just an amazing moment. And all those interviews, I should mention, are online. Let's see, what's the website? It's just New Hampshire Authors, I think. Mm -hmm. New Hampshire Authors at New Hampshire PBS. And all those interviews are available. The other magical moment was Maxine Cuman, who was a poet laureate. Do you know Maxine Cuman? Mm -hmm. Poet laureate from um, Warner. And she was certainly poet laureate of New Hampshire, and I think she might have been U.S. poet laureate at one point. Oh, and nice. she was an amazing, amazing poet who lived on a farm in Warner. And at the end, again, it's always the questions at the end that get you. And a young woman stood up and she said, when I wake each morning, I have three poems 
that I say to myself as affirmations for the day. And one of them is yours. And I said to the girl, I said to Max, and she said the name, I think the name of it was The Swimmer. And I said to the girl, do you, can you recite it? And, and then I said to Maxine, do you, Maxine said, I know that poem. And she recited the poem to this young woman who had tears mm. on her face to hear her poet recite one of the poems that meant most to her in her life. That was an amazing moment. Wow. Yeah. It's all about connection. Especially for children and those young, younger folks, like it's so transformative that you could take a totally new path in life based on one interaction with one person who may have inspired you, you know, curating that opportunity. It, mm -hmm. just, it must have been so nice. It's very nice. I mean, the New Hampshire Authors Series ended at least 10 years ago, but I still have people, young people, who say I was in the audience and I listen to those and I want to be a writer. I'm sure it's not simply because of that, mm. but seeing those writers and hearing their stories and understanding what it is that they're trying to do was certainly a factor in their deciding to mm. choose writing as a course. Wow. So in addition to that, you also and still are to this day the host of Our Hometown on New Hampshire PBS. Our Hometown, New Hampshire PBS. And guess what? I get paid. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! I've moved up in the world. Um, it's a, it's a, a series where we, uh, again, storytelling, where we go into a town and we say, what is this town about? What's special about this town? What stories do you want people to know about this town? And we sit down with locals and they tell us about their town and we record it and we, by we, I don't edit, I ask <laughs> questions and I introduce, I'm the host. But hardworking people like my friend Skylar Scribner edit and put together a half hour program that we think represents the town or the people think they re represents the town. It all depends on who comes out, who comes out. Wow. Our most recent was Nottingham. My hometown. It's your hometown. <laughs> I learned a lot about the four generals of Nottingham and about the dam and about Patuckaway Lake. And we really get to know a town when we mm. go into it. So it's, it's a lot, a lot of fun. And the personality of it too, with the people that come and represent, I'm sure it's, you know, no, no two towns are alike. No two towns are alike. And in the Nottingham show, we had children who were, I think, in fourth grade. Aww. talking about the history of their town. And we had a man named Steve Soroff, who is a retired psychiatrist, talking about the time he accidentally went over the dam in his kayak. Well, he didn't quite make it, but the kayak did. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> how, do you, how do you identify the people for that? How do you find the sort of regular people of Nottingham to be on our hometown? It's a snowball. It's okay. a snowball. We start, we, we go in and we say, we're we're, we want to do this town. We have chosen this town. Don't ask <laughs> us why, because we don't really know. But a lot of it's geography. We try to do a north country town, a seacoast town, a western town. And we put something in the local paper, if there is one. We put something on Facebook. And we say, who's got a story to tell? Oh. And often we will go to the historical society, or we'll go to the town offices. We'll go to the school. We try to make contacts and say, what's the story? And who's the best person 
to tell this story. Yeah. In Nottingham, uh, they referred us to a man named Chris Mills, who, I don't know if you remember, but there was a big um, bottling plant, a water bottling plant that was supposed to be built in Nottingham. Yes. And it was going to draw, I think, 300,000 gallons of water from the aquifer per day, yeah. per day, and ship it Dang. Overseas. Yeah. And the people of Nottingham were like, well, what, what will that do to us? What will that do to our wells, to the lake, to the rivers, to the wetlands? And a study was done, and it turned out it wouldn't do them any good. Yeah. And so a very small group of Nottingham people led by Chris Mills and his wife, Gail, tried to stop it. And they went to the town. We can't do anything. They went to the state. We can't do anything. And finally, they got an ordinance passed in Nottingham by a vote of the people that made it illegal to withdraw water from <laughs> Nottingham and take it out of town. Can't so, do so it. So if I go f fill up my water bottle in there, no, I'm going to get it? That question was asked. <laughs> it's okay if you fill your water bottle or if you buy coffee at Liar's Paradise, but you can't. But you can't take wow. the water for purposes of selling it in other places. And that stopped it. That became a model for towns in this state and nationally. The title of Chris Mills' segment on Our Hometown Nottingham is Despicable People. <laughs> because he was at a court session regarding this, and one of the lawyers for the other side stood up and said, well, we want, we want these things blacked out. We don't want these names released. And it's because of despicable people like them. And he looked right at Chris Mills and the small band of Nottingham warriors who had fought against the water bottling plant and won. Wow. That's an amazing story. And we tell it in much shorter time than I just took to tell you <laughs> because it's only a half hour show. But it's, I think it's an amazing story. It's a real David and Goliath. It's a David yeah. and Goliath story. Yeah. I was very little, but I do vaguely remember the fuss about the water bottle plant. I'm sure they still talk about it to this day. Well, the building's still there. Yeah. They put up a building. They were ready to go. Yep. They were ready to go. And these just a small group of people said, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going to happen to our water? Yeah. And stopped it. It, it took a lot. It took, I think, seven, at least six years, maybe more, to get it stopped. Yeah. But they did it. So I'm curious whether you're, you're telling a story or if you're on television, like you're on New Hampshire PBS, do you have any stage fright? Do you generally like being in front of an audience? Yes. <laughs> Wait, she asked a couple questions. Yes, to which one? <laughs> I like being in front of an audience. Uh, and I'll give you some background to that. I was a very shy young person. Yeah. And I, I got in trouble in both high school and college for not speaking. And I don't know why that was, but I could never, except I could never figure out when it was appropriate to speak. Mm. And I, I was so concerned about doing the right thing and behaving that I just didn't speak. I didn't find my voice. I guess my voice came out of my writing until I published my first book and had to go out in the world. And I had to speak. I had to speak. And, and the first time I spoke, I think I about passed out. <laughs> but how, I how, did it. How, excuse me, how old were you when you first I, published? Um, let's see. Well, when I published my first story, I was in my 20s. Okay. When I okay. published my first book, I was over 40. 
my first book. Because I had to, I had to go out, mm-hmm. it was necessary. And by then I had done some teaching as well. But once it was my job to speak, I discovered how much I really liked it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they talk about people who have different distances. Like some people like to be in it, you know, it's like close one-on-one, small groups. I like groups of a thousand. I mean, that's my distance. <laughs> if you've got three people in a room and you tell something that you think is funny, they just cover their mouths and look away. But if you've got a thousand people, somebody laughs, and then pretty soon they're all laughing, and the room is filled with laughter. That's what I like. It's like an orchestra. It's beautiful. That's so sweet. It's a big band. I like the big band. <laughs> I. That's really inspiring to hear that you went from being shy and reserved and afraid to share your voice to then having guts, the name, having guts guts to go and feel confident enough to do that. That's a hurdle that many creatives of all different disciplines face. And uh, another hurdle that sort of ties in with it slightly that we always ask all of our guests is imposter syndrome. Uh, (laughs) Do you or have you faced imposter syndrome? And if so, how did you work through it? I'm facing it right now. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Aren't we all? Well, I mean, it's um, writing is a job. It's a job. And isn't it amazing that you would like to talk to me about my job? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people are sitting in the audience listening to us talk about the job that I do. <laughs> you, I mean, that's sort of, Surreal. I feel like an imposter in that sense. It's like I sit at a, I sit at a desk <laughs> with a computer <laughs> and move my fingers. That's what I do. Fascinating, and, eh? And then you move <laughs> their hearts, right? Well, I try. I try. But, you know, it, with our hometown and the idea of gathering stories, people tell me stories about all aspects of life. Everybody's job is interesting if they're willing to talk about it. Yeah. If they're willing to talk about it. I remember when I was teaching, I taught for a while at UNH as an adjunct, and a young man said he couldn't write, had no couldn't as a writing class so that was a problem and um so I said well what do you do what do you love he said well I play hockey he's like, he was on the hockey team at UNH and I said well why don't you write about that well I don't know what to say and finally we got down to it. I said why don't you write about your skate write about your hockey skate he wrote the most beautiful piece about his skate and how it was sharpened and how the the blade curved just so so the water would i guess the melted ice would would go smoothly beneath it and the leather and the lacing and it was fascinating he of course he could write of yeah. course he could write just like with any other creativity it's a muscle that everyone mm-hmm. has that if you don't right. if you don't exercise it that's right you won't be able to use it that's as right. well as you could yeah i remember sort of i have this vivid memory of somebody professionally describing me as an expert and i sort of like cringed a little like Ugh. like do you remember the first time you either introduced yourself or you were introduced as a as a writer and what that felt like well, am I really a writer well I've never had a problem with that because writers write if you write you're a writer end mm-hmm. of discussion easy I did have a problem with the label storyteller okay oh really because sometimes storyteller 
tell her, that's, there's my accent come in. Storyteller, I have a slight New Hampshire accent. It'll kick in in a minute. But um, storytellers, you know, I picture them as just with these mobile faces and these long stories and moving across the stage mm. and having this repertoire of these beautiful stories about Gilgamesh and... <laughs> And, and hanging out with other storytellers, mm. you know, like the Shanaki in the Celtic tradition. I just told little stories that people told to me. So I didn't feel like a storyteller for a long time. But I do now. I'm not sure what clicked. I do now. I think there are different kinds of storytellers. And I'm a Yankee humorist. And I tell little short stories that make people laugh. And that's a storyteller, too. Yes. You don't have to be a bard to be a storyteller. Right. I've accepted that, but it took a long time. It took a long time. Something that we love to talk with our guests about, Creative Guts is on this mission to figure out is creativity, is it nature, is it nurture, is it genetic? And we recently learned that your daughter is also a writer. Yes, my daughter is a writer. She went to college for music. She has the most beautiful soprano voice I've ever heard. I don't know if I'm a little bit biased or not, but after she got out of college, having studied opera, she realized, she'll say this, I didn't want to do what it takes to be a professional opera singer. Mm. I didn't want to go to New York. I didn't want to do that. And so in her 30s, maybe early 30s, she went to Vermont College of fine arts and studied children's writing and now I think she's about to come out with her fifth novel for children wow she she also will say I didn't want to be a writer because my mom's a writer (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time she'll say I knew I could be a writer because my mom's a writer she knew what it took to be a writer which was to sit in a chair in front of a computer Mm -hmm. and move your fingers for hours at a time (laughs) Um, so and she knew I always say writers live in the land of rejection and she knew what that was like Mm -hmm. to live in the land of all all creatives I just love that word so much (laughs) all creatives live in the land of rejection Mm -hmm. and now is there collaboration between you two or how does in general collaboration play a part in the work that you do at this stage in my career, my collaboration is mostly with editors. Mm. And I send it to the editor and the editor says, yes, no, fix this, do that. End of discussion. However, <laughs> uh, my daughter is a wonderful reader and I do send my stuff to her when I think it's finished or close to finished. And my husband also reads. Mm. So those, they are my two readers before it goes to the editor at a publisher or a publication. Now, have, uh, this may be tough to air, but have there been, ever been any family fights of, of critique given that was not appreciated within the family? No. Good. <laughs> I don't know if that'd be the same in my family. <laughs> That's great to but hear. But I do get annoyed when I send her an email and say, would you read this? Of course, she lives over the garage because she's, <laughs> she's very poor because she's a writer. But um, I send her an email and say, would you look at this essay? And she doesn't respond for two weeks. That's um, annoying. Yes. <laughs> Especially since I already sent it into the magazine. <laughs> I suppose I could mention it to her in passing. I could go up to the garage, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but she's really very helpful and a very, uh, she's got a very good eye. Mm. Very good eye. She's a good editor. So that's helpful. Let's talk about writer's block. Yes. Do you ever get writer's block? And what's your, like, how do you get out of it? I never get writer's block. (laughs) 
What's your secret? I never get, I can always write. I can sit in a chair. Um, It's really an attitude. Sometimes I write much better than other times. Maybe that's, sometimes what I write is not so hot. Don Murray, who's this amazing teacher at UNH that I studied with and worked with, had a line. He said, well, writer's block. He said, do plumbers get plumber's block? No, (laughs) they do not. And writers, professional writers, do not get writer's block. They do the job. Mm -hmm. Deadlines are my friend. I love a good deadline. I love a quick deadline. I love a quick deadline. The essay that I wrote, I was working on this week for New Hampshire Magazine, which will come out in March. I wrote it. See, here's the story. It's 600 words. I wrote 624 words, sent it to my daughter. She didn't respond for two weeks. I didn't mention it to her. And I rewrote it over those two weeks. I rewrote, I rewrote. I bet I spent five hours or more rewriting that essay and finally sent it off to the magazine. She wrote back after I'd sent it and said, looks good. I'm just a little confused about the name Grover in the first paragraph and the name Grover in the second, in the third paragraph. Are they the same Grover? I had resolved that. And I, and I looked at the essay I'd sent to her two weeks earlier and it was almost exactly the same. (laughs) And I thought, why did I spend all these hours revising this? It wasn't that bad (laughs) in the first place. But see what I said, it's those words. It's Mm -hmm. those little, it's Mm -hmm. just playing with those little words. It's playing with those little words and trying to get them exactly right. Exactly right. So that when the reader picks it up, he or she can hear the voice, Mm. can hear the tone. It's like a chef. You want to have all the right ingredients for the perfect dish. Yeah. You have the two dishes, then they taste the one and you taste the other, and they're a lot the same, but this one has taken a lot longer to make. Yes. <laughs> yes. You can't help yourself. I had a quick question I just thought of. Writing rituals. So when you sit down to write, do the lights have to be half dim? Do you need a cup of tea? Like, what is the setup, the layout, real quick? Do you want the truth? Yes. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, I write in bed. <laughs> Should I say that? I have an office, Mm. but there are two doors to it, and people keep going through them. (laughs) My husband, my daughter, her husband, they keep going through them. (laughs) And so I can go upstairs and get into bed and with my, my laptop, and I sit there, and I do this almost every day. Maxine Cuman, when asked, you know, do you write every day, said, well, I eat breakfast every day. Mm. And writing is like that. Most days I eat breakfast. So I write most every day. I go up. And my computer now only has about two hours of battery. <laughs> so when the computer dies, I either stop or go downstairs and get the plug. So that's my ritual. <laughs> right in the morning, <laughs> right in bed. And now, this time of year, it's great because it's so much warmer up there. Oh, yes. Yeah. Got to get all cozy. Yeah. Cuddly. <laughs> and my little dog comes with me also. Aww. Chico, he's my editor. <laughs> and, and what about the cats? We know you have six or seven, but who's counting? Yeah. Do well, they... the cats don't come upstairs because of the dogs. Okay. So they don't... Bo- well, unless the dogs are gone for a walk and then the cats come and they uh. help also. <laughs> a lot of movement in this house. (laughs) There is a lot going on in this house. There's a lot going on. We might have some aspiring writers in the room. We might, I know that the students read your work. What advice do you give to aspiring writers, especially younger ones? Trust your voice. Trust your voice. There are millions of topics in the world to write about, and nothing has ever not been written about. If I put an egg on this table, 
and I say to everybody in this room, write about this egg. It's just an egg. And yet everyone in the room will approach it in a different way. They will write about it in a different way. They will see something different. They will have different associations, different experiences. It's not about the egg. It's about you and your voice. It's about who you are. That's what you bring to the page. Yes, you study the craft. Yes, you read everything you can read and a variety of things. Lots, you hear lots of different voices. You read constantly, but trust who you are. That's enough. I remember Alice McDermott, who was I was in graduate school with her at UNH, and she wrote a book called That Night. She's quite a well-known writer, and she's written many novels since then. But I remember her saying, well, I grew up in the suburbs. What's to write about in the suburbs? It's so boring. It's not the city. It's not the country. It's the suburbs. All the houses look alike. She wrote this book, That Night, which is about a night in the suburbs <laughs> when all heck breaks loose. And Barbie. It's about Barbie. I mean, it, it's her, it's Alice's take on that. It's her unique way of seeing the world. It's not where you were born you know, how you were raised. It's all of those things together that shape you and that shape your voice. And that's what people want to hear. When people fall in love with writers, it's not that they fall in love with the particular book or the particular topic. It's they fall in love with the voice mm. of the writer. Oh, just hit me in the gut. So oh, in, inspiring. In your creative guts, <laughs> yes, so to speak. <laughs> so trust your voice and you all have homework, which is to write about an egg. <laughs> what would your egg story be about, Sarah? Ooh, uh, I will get back to you. Well, first you have to name the egg, but you can't call it an egg. <laughs> I'd call mine Mulder and it would be like an X-Files, like the aliens came to abduct the egg. You name Maybe. your egg Mulder? Mulder, yeah. Mulder. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Maybe. your egg is alive. Yeah. I'm watching the X-Files right now. And there's now, something so, yeah. in that egg. And when, what if you open the egg? An alien. It's an alien. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. See, that's you. That's yep. you, Laura. That's you and the egg. Space cadet Laura. Yep. <laughs> so... That was very inspiring. I, I try not to be too inspiring because it's mostly just work. It's mostly focus and work. Well, now we're really going to make you work because uh -oh. it's time for rapid fire questions, which is a segment we do to conclude and wind down from each interview where we ask uh -oh. quick questions with hopefully quick answers. What other writer or storyteller has influenced you the most? Ooh. Well, I love Sarah Orne Jewett, Country of the Pointed Furs, because she writes about our region and the kind of people that I love to know, get to know. I love Mark Twain because of the humor. As for storytellers, I think the one who's influenced me the most is a man named Papa Joe Gaudet, who tells stories for adults and children. He's an itinerant storyteller who lives in his van and travels <laughs> all over the country telling stories wherever people will listen to him. I admire that. And he's got a ton of stories. So, yes. And he's taught me a few. So, I appreciate it. Uh. Thanks, Papa Joe. <laughs> you might want to have him on at some point if you can catch him. When you first said that name, I thought you were going to say Papa John's. Oh, like, Papa, Papa John's, John's Pizza. <laughs> no, it's Papa Joe Godet. You can call him Papa. Next question What does the world need more of? Laughter and kindness. Those are great answers. What does the world need less of? <laughs> oh, should I say it? Less people. I mean, not that I want to kill them all. No, well. But there are so many yeah. of us. <laughs> there are so many of us. I guess, you know, not 
not get a little rid more of, room. Not a get rid of the ones yeah. we have, but be careful about who we, <laughs> the ones we are going to have. This is a this is a birth control comment. Okay, well, and <laughs> kind of a loaded question. Oh my gosh! All right, this one should be safe. Favorite color? <laughs> my favorite color is green. Favorite scent? Oh, hot pine on a summer's day when the sun has beat onto the onto the humus in a pine grove and the scent rises and fills you. Also, I wrote that line yesterday. <laughs> I'm just going to say, you sound like a writer. <laughs> yeah, well, because I wrote it. Because one of my characters was experiencing that yesterday and it brought it back to me. Absolutely. What's your favorite sound? Oh, my favorite sound, so many. I think it's of my daughter hitting a high note in an aria. That's awesome. Or in an Irish ballad, those are my favorite. They make me cry. Mm. I like it when she sings an (laughs) Irish ballad and it makes me cry. Mm. So sweet. What's your favorite texture to touch? Ooh, well, I'm a quilter. So I love fabric. I love cotton. I love the feeling of thread between my fingers and the needle going through the three layers. Mm. Yeah. I'm attached to fabric. What's the most inspiring location you've traveled to? Home. Ah. (laughs) I haven't traveled a lot, but I think because my beat is New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. I just, I love I love traveling throughout New Hampshire, Colebrook, New Hampshire, amazing town, Christmas tree farm Mm. in Colebrook, New Hampshire. That's, I mean, that's inspiring to look out at acres and acres of Christmas trees that are going to be shipped all over the world. A waterfall in in Berlin, New Hampshire, Mm. those mostly natural places within the state of New Hampshire and a Maine. I like Maine also. That's great. Yeah. This is our clincher question. Uh If you could go back in time, what advice would you give your younger self? I'm not much of a one to give advice. Maybe it's the imposter syndrome. Mm. But I think I would say to her, be brave, be braver, make mistakes. Don't be afraid to make mistakes. You're going to anyway, but don't fear it. Just Mm. do it and learn from it and move on. Becky, I need to hear that right now. I always need to hear that. Don't be afraid to make mistakes because that's what we learn from. Yeah. 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 Don Murray, I mentioned earlier, said, you know, you learn to write well by writing badly. Don't be afraid to write badly. That's how you grow. So it applies to life as well. Love it. It's great advice. Geez, you make me feel like a philosopher. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I'm just, I'm just a writer. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the Creative Guts podcast. Thank you for your wonderful questions and your interest and for what you're doing. It's a good thing that you're doing. And and thank you so much for embarking with us on this uh, live audience journey. I think that there were a lot of really important (laughs) gems in what you said today that our audience today Mm. in person can take from this and, Mm -hmm. and our listeners can take too. Yeah. People in the audience are making motions that are, I think, positive. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Oh, I see some. Yay. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> so with that, show us your thoughts. Another big thank you to Becky Rule for joining us on Creative Guts, for our audience in the Exeter High School Auditorium, to the folks at Exeter High School and the Racial Unity Team for organizing this, and to the New Hampshire State Council on the Arts for making this possible. 
This was such a fun experience and Becky was such a gem that I'm not sure where to start. Often when we're interviewing, I jot down these darling little sentences that jump out at me. And during this interview, I jotted down several. When Becky talked about writer's block and it being okay to write badly, because that's how you get good at writing. When she talked about the magic of finding the right words. When she talked about publishing enough. I'm not the only one she inspired. We heard from the students in the live audience what jumped out to them too. Students learned that they should trust their voice, that they don't need to change their writing so others will like it, and that if you write, you're a writer. One student said that they felt hopeful because Becky talked about being shy and afraid to speak in front of people. And then she grew into who you just heard, a fantastic public speaker. The feedback this particular student shared melted my heart because honestly, I was and kind of am that student. Becky's insight into how to believe in yourself and grow your own voice really hit me hard. She is a public speaker who is just wonderful. But what folks didn't see behind the curtain of the live show before we hit record was Becky cracking jokes, asking us engaging questions, and just being a delightful person to be around. Her energy feels akin to standing in the sun. Becky, I'm so glad you are our first live guest. You touched many hearts, including mine. Learn more about Rebecca at RebeccaRule.com. You'll find that link in the show notes and on our website, CreativeGutsPodcast.com. Learn more about us on our website. You'll find us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Just search Creative Guts Podcast. If you want to support the show, consider making a donation to Creative Guts. Our budget is tiny, so donations of any size make a big difference. Learn more about us and make a donation at CreativeGutsPodcast.com. Additionally, you can like and subscribe to this wherever you listen to podcasts and also engage with our social media content. Thank you for tuning in. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Creative Guts. This part's going to be edited out. You guys get a sneak peek. So (laughs) we end our episode with a little countdown and then in tandem, we're going to say, show us your creative guts. Now I'm mentioning this because we're going to do one take of it and then we're going to ask you to shout it out with us as the clincher of the whole episode, okay? I'm excited. <laughs> Are you ready? Now, we don't know if we're going to be able to pick you guys up or not, but we're going to try, all right? So I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to go, and with that, three, two, one, and then we're all going to say it. Is everyone up for saying it? Yeah. 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 All right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and- Aya? 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 She also <laughs> currently writes the monthly Aya. Now, I'm cognizant of the fact that there's the bell. Oh, hello, Bill. I was just about to say, I'm not going to ask another question because there's going to be a bell. Was that it? Okay. It was a very (laughs) quiet and unobtrusive bell. It was. It was was a mild bell. Yeah. In the sun. Why do I say the sun? That's freaking weird. (laughs) In the sun. Hello, Sarah. Can you hear me? I'm speaking loudly and clearly into the microphone. Oh, perfect. Yeah, that's great. Is that good? Yeah, that's really good. All right. Is that good? Hello. Okay. All right. Tell us a joke, Rebecca. I'll tell you a story. (laughs) Okay. I'll I'll tell you a story. We had we have a camp up in Maine, and we had this boat, this power boat that the motor wouldn't work on, and we were sick of hauling it in and out. So we put a sign up at the local trading post: "Free boat." And this kid comes by. His name was Josh Rock, or it might have been. I think it was Josh Rock, and he's a clam digger. And he looked at the boat, and he said, um, God, he said, usually when a boat is free, it don't look as good as that. 
And I said, oh. Such a Mainer accent. He said, is it really, is it really free? I said, yes. And he said, I'm going to get my friends over to come and move it. So he brought his couple of his friends over, and they had to haul it up over the bank. And, and, I, and he said, thank you. And I said, you're welcome, Josh. And he said, I'm jumping for joy. <laughs> Did he say it just like that? He did. He said, I'm jumping for joy. And the next day, we had a pail of clams on our steps and things. And they were delicious. I'm jumping. Thank you for Shit. Okay. That's troublesome. Did you just say shit? No, I didn't. <laughs>